Hello and welcome to The Last Standee, a board game podcast coming to you from several exciting countries across Europe. I'm joined here today by Alexis. Uh, hello from Belgium. Cara. Hello from Germany. David. Moin from Germany. And I'm your host, Fen, located in the Baltic Sea. Uh, today, we're going to be sinking under the tides with Atlantis rising, taking flight across the continents with Wingspan, exploring the shattered wasteland apocalypse with Mutant Year Zero, and suffering repeating bouts of amnesia with Mind MGMT. Or is it Mind Movement? I don't know, but uh, it should be exciting. Before we get into all of that, we'll start with a standee catch-up. What have you been up to, David? Oh, I had a pretty busy time, but I'm now a certified project manager, so that's great. <laughs> also had a uh, had a job interview today, which went pretty fine, I think. I hope so. <laughs> Wonderful. Kara, how have you been doing? Uh, well, okay. It's uh, still pretty stressful in school, um, but um, recently I actually managed to play some games like in person with some people again. Um, we played Deep Sea Adventure and um, Legends of Andor, the third part, and um, something else. I don't remember the name. It was a small two-player game you had these hexagonal playing pieces with different insects on them and hive yeah, you build the grid as you play like they're baker like tiles they go yeah they go next to each other and then you can move them as well and you basically have to surround the enemy queen yeah that's that's hive yeah it's very good yeah. it's it's, yeah, it's a pretty abstract. amazing game and it, it's really small amazing easy to teach um lots of fun yeah, if you enjoy that, you may want to look at the Project GIPF games, which are also two-player abstract games um, with a theme around six, so like hexagonal stuff happens a lot. I would thoroughly recommend Yinch or Zertz, but you can look them up on uh, it's Project GIPF, which is G-I-P-F, I think. Um, uh, hang on. Let's make sure I get that right. Yes, GIPF project, yeah. Yeah, so it was well, was lots of fun to get to play games again. And uh, next week we will meet up to continue our Dungeons & Dragons uh, campaign. So that's something to look forward to. And um, yeah. So um, what about you, Alexis? Um, well, I've not been able to to play much, uh, unfortunately. I finally got a game of uh, Dune, um, the, the recent re-edition of it, uh, with the, um, the the sandstorms moving around and stuff. And it, it's been pretty fun, but I think that I will need a few more games to have a good opinion on it, of it, because it's kind of complex, especially with the, the way the different families interact with each other. But I've been, I've been enjoying it. And I've yeah. also um, somehow been in a, in a chess binger recently, and I've been uh, trying to get back into the the one of the oldest game uh, board game that uh, that we can uh, we can all enjoy. Um, and it's been it's been fun, and I'm finally getting uh, getting better again. <laughs> so lots of retro gaming for you then, because Dune's pretty old as well. Dune is pretty old again. I think it's more recent than chess. I'm not sure. Oh, I... 
Definitely, it's about five hundred years <laughs> after chess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Chess is about the fifteenth century. And, yeah. Um, uh, do you? I think is sometime in the future. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if it was Star Wars, obviously that would be before chess. Yeah. So of that course. Star Wars chess game predates chess, um, obviously. Cause... A long, long time ago. Yeah. Fun yeah. fact, by the way, I just I, I just looked up ooh, wrong when chess is, and 3D chess is from 1851. I thought Star Trek introduced it, but no, it was 1851. Oh, that's interesting because I, I my local stockist actually got a copy of the Star Trek 3D chess set in, um, like last week and it's like 200 euros um, <laughs> yes yeah, it's, it's the full recreation of it with working rules and everything nice um, very cool uh, and what about you fan oh um so i've been playing a lot of uh, i'm gonna get his name wrong vital lacerda games uh so um kanban ev um which is all about being as efficient as possible as constructing cars. On Mars, which is all about me staring at the rule book and still not quite trying to being able to understand what's going on. Um, I'm struggling with On Mars. I really am. I've watched a bunch of videos, uh, but I got to play the gallerist, and um, that one is a lot lighter than the other two. I, I and I found it as easy to understand as Kanban, and yeah, that and Kanban are great. I just I think I need like the right people to sit down with, and maybe someone to teach me On Mars because um, I've been trying to learn it. For a year now, and I, my eyes just glaze over. So I'm going to put it on the shelf and wait for the cooperative expansion to come up, and that might change things. And that makes I, sense. yeah, and I also got to play the. It's not the disc. Well, it used to be the Discworld board game, but obviously the licensing on board games like that is an issue. Uh, it's called Nanti Narking which is the Discworld game rethemed for Victorian London. And oh. it's every bit as good as the Discworld one is um, mechanically. It's just not as good not, as not as themes. thematically. Well, yeah, yeah. Victorian London's pretty good as a theme goes, but it's it's no Discworld. It's no Ankh-Morpork. pork. Um, and, and last of all, I finally got myself Sushi Go Party. I've had Sushi Go forever, and I wanted to upgrade to Sushi Go Party, which I did. I almost talked about that today. Oh. And Get Bit, which I've wanted for years, um, which is a board game where you are a bunch of robots swimming away from a shark, and everybody's trying to avoid being the robot at the back, because if they are, <laughs> then they're going to get bit and lose a piece of themselves, which is probably why they're robots, because that explains why they can keep swimming when they've only got one arm. Um but yeah, it's, a, it's just a fun, silly little put it out and have an enjoyable time kind of game. So yeah, that's that's mostly been been it um, on the gaming front. That does sound nice. Yeah, yeah, it has been. Yep, <clears throat> and and I've been playing the game which I'm going to talk about today as well. Oh, that's my. Hi. Oh, I miss you. Hey. Oh, oh, you, you, you okay. hello. Where, where are you coming <laughs> from? This is so surprising. <laughs> Well, this this was unexpected. <laughs> okay. How have you been doing, Alessio? <laughs> oh, uh, doing rather well. It happened a lot of stuff this week. Um, I'd say, um, first, um, I actually continued my campaign with, um, with uh, uh, Descent Legends of the Dark. 
and I'm very very close to the end and I have to say this game has captivated me so uh, this is probably the last you will hear from me until we talk about it and uh, great I have to say great um, second I I kind of uh, have an, an appointment with, to, to, to play a game date if you want with uh, one of our listeners, Brandon, <laughs> I think in Friday because uh, he's actually vacationing in uh, near my home, so probably we'll manage to to have a try of a game. I think we will play mind, mind management actually. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I guess uh, everyone. Uh, Everyone is ready, so I think we can start. Start? Yes. Yeah. 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 So, uh, now that we're all caught up, it's time to talk about the first game, which I alluded to during my little segment. I've been playing this a fair bit. Uh, this is the one to seven player cooperative game from Gallen Cicel. Uh, pronunciation's always mangled, guaranteed. Uh, Atlantis Rising. Uh, from Elf Creek Games. It's a one to seven player worker placement game about the end times of Atlantis. Um, the tagline is, can you save the island of Atlantis? Uh, I gotta say the answer is actually, no, you can't because it's sinking, but can you save the population? Um, so you will, with all the other people you're playing with, sit down uh, with two boards. First board is a six peninsula island that looks like a starfish or starmy from Pokemon. Uh, it's where all of the like the island itself is and all the industries located. And the second board is more of a abstract mosaic kind of board. It represents the get cosmic gate that you you and your fellow Atlanteans with your amazing technology of whenever BC are going to construct a gate and leave earth and not come back except to maybe menace uh some 1990s heroes in an awful movie or something like that uh <clears throat> so this game needless to say pretty unusual in that it's a worker placement cooperative game which you don't get a lot of cooperative worker placement games typically they're kind of more point movement games like pandemic or arkham or their card games like regicide or on mars you know all their miniature based games um so i think that's pretty neat in itself uh but the really cool stuff all happens in how the worker placement's done so initially the cosmic gates got almost nothing on it except spots where you're going to build modules and the modules for the Cosmic Gate are picked at the start of the game. It's got a few recommended setups for you, but there's a whole load of choices, so that will change the texture of the, the game there and like mix things up. You can also pick the difficulty. That's a bit more like Pandemic in that you'll be putting in cards to make this uh, Misfortune deck easier or harder. Um, and then the last piece is sort of randomization at setup so input randomization is the character you play because not only do you have workers but you've got one worker who's more special than the rest they're bigger they're fancier and they have special powers people like the architect uh the priestess the guardian and so on and they'll have an ability that kind of chimes to their own particular larger worker you also have a load of workers off the board which you can try and pick up so 
game flow, very simple. Everybody decides where they're going to put their workers. So you've got little circles where you can put workers and they're located on either on the Cosmic Gateboard or on Atlantis. Now, the best locations are near the ends of the peninsulas, but those places are most likely to flood, sink and disappear from the board. And if you're on them when that happens, you're not going to get anything because you don't get anything until after flooding has happened. So you place, you draw misfortune and then you find out if you can do stuff on the tile. So there's this exciting bit of risk a reward where you want to go as near to the end of the peninsula as possible. But if you go too far, you're going to get nothing. So it's a it's an educated gamble and or choice, which is, I think, really cool. Um, the peninsulas themselves are all themed around one specific thing. You've got a place where you can pick up magical crystals, one where you can get gold, one where you can get iron ore, one where you can smelt the iron ore into iron bars. And those iron bars are like, I think they're proper pieces of little metal. They feel very weighty and cool. Uh, there's a library peninsula, just nothing but books, where you can learn like one-off powers or permanent powers to use during the game. And then the city, where you can get extra workers um, uh, there's a cap to how many extra workers you can get. I think it depends on the number of players, but with the bigger groups, the maximum you can have each is four. Uh, so there's a lot of different places to go, and e each peninsula can have multiple spots, but the resource gathering ones involve dice rolls, and uh, so there's no guarantee. And the better numbers sit nearer the end of the peninsula, and also you will at times get more resources from the end of the peninsula. But there's less spots as well to go there. So it's very much a juggling act. And on top of that, you can always go to the middle of the board and you can gather energy. The middle of the board is the last piece to sink always. Energy, you don't use it to build anything, but you can use it to erect magical barriers that will prevent the next flooding on a given peninsula. So if something's super important, you can get a bit of energy and protect it. And that's what's really nice about this is while there's a lot of randomization in the setup and you don't know which peninsulas are going to sink, you've got loads of mitigation you can do. You can pick up, you, you know what you're going to have to build to complete the engine because all of the costs are in advance. You know where you got to go, you know what you got to do, but you don't know if you're going to succeed at it and you don't know what's going to sink or when. So honestly, fantastic game. And amazingly, I played this one player really tight interesting they add uh, uh, an automaton who gives you like it makes makes locations easier to succeed in and a hologram who gives you an extra random follower each turn who's like a leader um but then when you get to the higher numbers it all kind of reduces down in the number of actions each player has the number of workers they have and the misfortunes start hitting faster because you draw one per player it's very cool this this game is super well balanced it's gorgeous every single component is just all the colors have unique workers um, the hologram is like a shiny hologram character the all the resources are like made out of different materials so they, they're not just tokens they're physical ones um, and the entire thing fits into a, a nice insert where it all goes in place and honestly this is such a good production it's one of those ones that's so good that you look and go oh i hope they don't do an expansion because i'm not going to fit the expansion in this main box like parks yeah yeah um 
but I, I've been playing this a fair amount. It's just a good production. It's a great solo game. It's a great group game, and it's not super difficult to play. It's quite accessible. And the constant scaling of difficulty that you can choose at the start, you can you can have like the hologram available to make things easier, or you can have the automaton to make things easier, or you can uh, give people more sort of like um, better different components for the gate. Because once you construct a component, it becomes a place that either does something immediately to give you a bonus, or gives you a place to put workers. So the game is really customizable to your skill level and that is just fantastic that's always really good yeah yeah you know i, I didn't know about a lot about uh, atlantis rising before uh, hearing uh, about it uh, here but uh, i have to say a thing it, it kind of resonates with the palio uh, th there's th there are a couple of things in common i think and uh, and uh, the, the misfortune deck like for instance with events or the or the actual turn order or, or something like uh, uh, the, the modules you can add and i'm saying this because in palio the best thing i played in that game was the the, the modules because the, the i i'm a solo player mostly a solo player of this kind of games and uh, uh, I loved the variance in starting condition, in game condition. Is this kind of similar? It's more, it's less? It's different, no. Um, the modules are just single tiles. So you will vary the engine, the, the gate that you're constructing at the end of the game. Um, but the main changes that are happening are to the, the deck. So it's more like the way Pandemic scales its, mis it, its um, Pandemic deck. You know, it's, it's Outbreak deck. Uh, you can have... It, it, there's always flooding in there. You get to put more cards in that give you turns where less scary stuff happens. Um, or is it more scary? Actually, I, I, I have to double check at some point, but uh, it's um, <laughs> it, it has that kind of scaling where you just make the deck harder or easier depending on how you adjust it. Um, anyway, anyway, gotcha. This is quite different. Then. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's very different. It reminds me far more of a more complex and deep version of Pandemic with worker placement than, um, than Paleo. Paleo's... I think there's way more going on in Paleo on the chaotic random front because Paleo is very much <laughs> you get a bit of an idea of what's going to happen to you, but you've got to you, you don't find out exactly until you draw the card. Whereas at most of Atlantis Rising, you can wait all the odds and you can even say this peninsula is not going to flood this turn because I'm going to put some gates on it. So you've got more planning it's it's um it's really a thing to see when you play with a large group because there's so much going on and you've got to coordinate so much that it feels very collaborative which i do i do really like it one thing that i really like about uh, atlantis is the way that the board looks it's very unusual and it very is fun. yeah 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 it's it's a, it's very clean and clear um except for sometimes you might get a little confused between the three, the the two green zones, which I do it uh, when I draw a card for forests. I'm like, which one's forests again? I, I eventually internalized forest is crystals, um, 
and the lighter green one is gold but you see like i can't even remember the name of the lighter green one yeah um yeah yeah so it's it, it, it's a little slow at times it would have been helpful if um if there'd been iconography of it like a tree on every forest tile but when you push them together like to join them the jigsaw puzzles so satisfying and when you turn them over and you see the sunken remains of atlantis like washing under the the waves it makes me i don't have phasmophobia but i almost do when i look at that board when it's sinking and i'm like <laughs> oh no thank you no thank you i live on an island i'd hate to see it flooding um yeah so that that's my recommendation for for you know really good cooperative game that's also great solo uh, it's just just a little bit more complex than some co-op games and i think very accessible but we're going to talk about another game that's probably even more accessible next yeah and, i have a question yeah go on um when i look it up uh, the starfish shaped board there are pictures of the starfish shaped board on a regular board yep i don't know that regular board i think might be first edition i don't have that in the second edition okay yeah so uh also um, why seven players the starfish island has six arms why is it seven I players i, I <laughs> to disturb I, you I, I don't, well there is a gate in the middle so technically there's six peninsulas and, and the gate so maybe it's that maybe it's to disturb you maybe it's because they couldn't make it work with eight players you know a anyway uh, techno magic uh, setting for Atlantis is best setting like Indiana Jones and the fate of Atlantis kids play that game yeah it's a it's a great uh, great setting and um yeah, the, the Atlanteana went up to the stars, apparently. Yeah, that's what we learned in Stargate. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, remember that Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis is a game which is better than the last two movies of Indiana Jones. Let's not get into the last Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> What are you talking? The last Indiana Jones movie and the young Indiana Jones movie. What are you too. talking about? The last Indiana Jones movie gave us CGI Shia LaBeouf swinging with monkeys in one of the most astronomically wonderfully bad things I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> that was the last thing Shia LaBeouf did. And it, it gave us nuking the fridge as a pop culture reference as well. <laughs> yeah, nuking the fridge. Yeah, it is a thing that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can enjoy the next Indiana Jones movie when it comes along. I'm sure it will be Indiana Jones in space or something, just to continue with the progression away <laughs> from pulpy adventure towards pulpy sci-fi. Yeah. Um, so that's that's Atlantis Rising. Um, I honestly, I think for me, eight out of ten, maybe nine out of ten. Like this is an incredible production. It's a really good game. Um, and it's quite unique in all sorts of aspects, so I thoroughly recommend it. But I think our next game is probably more accessible and far more popular. Uh, and it's been a long time coming, so it's time for us to talk about birds. Have you heard that the bird is the word? Because it is. And that word <laughs> is wingspan. So, Kara, take it away. Yeah, so let's uh, go away from sinking islands towards uh, beautiful and peaceful countrysides where ornithologists sit around and just watch birds. That's basically the story of uh, Wingspan. Um, so in Wingspan, um, I think, yeah, one to five players, 
um, just collect birds. And um, it's, as you said, it's a very accessible game because it technically doesn't have a lot of rules and a lot going on at first sight. So um, you play over four turns and um, or four rounds and uh, each round is limited by the number of actions you can do. I think the first round is like uh, eight actions and in the second round it's seven actions and every uh, round one less. So when it's your turn you do one action and then the next player is. And there are only four actions. Um, as I said, the game is basically you being an ornithologist and collecting birds. So you sit there and just watch for birds and where they land. So um, one of the actions is drawing cards. Yeah, you can draw new birds into your hand. Then you have an action that you can play these cards into one of uh, three uh, habitats. You have uh, forests, you have uh, plains and you have wetlands and um, and then you can collect uh, bird feed to you know feed the birds uh, you can only place them somewhere when you give them food because basically with the food you uh, <coughs> lure them towards you and uh, the last action is laying eggs which technically not you are doing but the birds and um yeah that's more or less the whole game um it sounds kind of boring but it isn't and um because all these things have just some more going on one of those things is um the different habitats correspond to an action so uh, for example laying eggs uh, corresponds to uh, the plains habitat and the more birds you have in this habitat the better the action becomes uh, the same with drawing cards normally you can only draw one card if you do this action but if you played for example four birds into the wetland habitat you can draw three cards and um, so that's one thing um, that uh, influences what you do. So you really have to decide, okay, where do I want to play a bird? Birds can't be played everywhere. For example, the bird on the cover, uh, the, uh, damn it, I just looked up what the English name is. Um, <laughs> the German name is Scherenschwanz Königstyran. If I translate it word by word, it's the scissor tail king tyrant. Um, <laughs> I, That's um, a good name for bird. Wait. Kingfisher. Flycatcher. Scissor tail it's a fly, it's, flycatcher. Yes, it's a flycatcher. Yeah. So that's the bird on the cover. Um, Tyrannus forficatus. And uh, this one can only be played in plains because apparently these birds don't live in wetlands or woods. So um, <clears throat> there's a lot of decision going on um, you draw a bird that might be played in different habitats so you have to decide where do we want it um, to improve the action also the different birds have different abilities some birds give some bonus ability when you play them others like the scissor-tailed flycatcher have a brown segment on their card which means if you activate the action of the habitat the bird is played in 
you also activate this ability. Yeah? Um, so in this case, uh, everyone gets a warm for bird feet. And um, so that means while you play, continue playing birds, uh, you also build little engines uh, with your actions. And um, the first round isn't very interesting, but it becomes more. And in the last round, um, a lot of things can happen. Yeah, So someone activates, uh, uh, chooses an action and goes through it. Okay, this word gives this bird gives me this. Now this bird means I draw a card and check this and and so on. So um, yeah, that's um, pretty cool. And you kind of grow into it. So it's not like you start a game and you are overwhelmed with uh, different abilities and choices. It it builds up, um, which makes it accessible. Um, you can just explain the four actions and start playing and. Uh, people will learn more about it the longer the play and that's, that's fine yeah that's yeah, actually that's, a um, question that i had for for those that that played the game because i only played wingspan uh the digital version it has a very good um steam version that that plays really well and that is all automated and i was kind of wondering how if the, the physical game is in any way overwhelming because you have a lot of different actions and a lot of different interactions between the cards. I was wondering how, um, you know, on, a, on the board it feels to, to see how everything works together. Well, I was going to chime ah. in and say I have played this with my in-laws who, um, they're Swedish and um, <clears throat> Uh, my mother-in-law, she speaks, well, her, her English is good, but she's not super confident with it. Um, we played Wingspan in English, and she, first time playing, she wiped the floor with all of us while constantly saying, I don't know what I'm doing, I don't know what I'm <laughs> I doing. Think, I, I hate think those people. I think that's more of a, um, a mother power. Like, eh. yes. Yeah. Yes. It, it might be a mother power, but my father-in-law loved it so much, um, and he's not a big board gamer, that he has had the Swedish edition like on Please Tell Me When It's in Stock with all of the board game um, shops in Stockholm um, since he first played it. Wonderful. He so desperately wants it in Swedish. He loved it. Uh, he loves birds anyway, but he was like, this is just, yeah. He, he likes the gradual build up and the fact that it's not too complex and by the end of it you're doing a lot in, in many ways for me it reminds me of san juan and race of the galaxy in that where you start off relatively simple but it's less overwhelming on the choices for beginning i like games that do that it, it does ease you into yeah um i i would say that race to for the galaxy is my uh my favorite introduction to um engine builder but uh wingspan is definitely my favorite uh more complex version of it i think that it, it does a lot of really interesting things with the way that it, it generates resources it has the different regions that you can play stuff on it's it's less straightforward but it has a lot more depth i feel Ooh, I have opinions about that. Mm, I do as well. I'd say it's uh, more straightforward than Race of the Galaxy and has less depth. But that doesn't mean it's a worse game. This is far more accessible. Race for the Galaxy is obscenely complex. 
Yeah, exactly. Race for the Galaxy, I think, is the most complex card game with engine building uh, part I uh, ever uh, played. Uh, uh, I'm going to contradict you there. Glory to Rome is the most complex <laughs> card game with engine building. Uh, I I wouldn't uh, just call Glory to Rome just engine building. But it is. It is, in essence, engine building for the most part. But let's not get into that. We're, we're talking about Wingspan. And, yeah. Uh, so, okay. Yeah. And, and the expansions. And anyway, yeah, cute bird. No, no, no. I, I want to say something about Wingspan. Okay, this game to me, uh, I think that this game has actually two faces because uh, initially the game is actually a bit. Uh, um, it's in, it's uh, entry level, so it's uh, very simple, and you can manage to play it. It's it is true that there is a big selection of birds, which can be overwhelming, but but a lot of the birds are repeated in powers and in the end there's a, a lot of similar stuff. So it's true that uh, Elizabeth Hargrave had a great love for this game. It's a, it exudes passion because it shows that it's made with love. But uh, I have to say, it is kind of simple. And you say, oh, it's, it's all here, okay. It's a kind of uh, light German. Uh, while this is true, the game grows on you, meaning that uh, you start uh, thinking about combos and stuff uh, because you, you learn that uh, you need bursts uh, that lay eggs because then uh, you can uh, fill in more ranks in the habitats, then uh, you go for nesting birds, uh, then you occasionally trash predatory birds because predatory birds sucks, and uh, then you go with uh, migratory birds because they are uh, overpowered and so on. And that's phase two. Then there's a phase three with core wingspan, which is basically, uh, okay, this game is completely random. If you draw two migratory birds at the beginning, uh, I have lost. <laughs> so uh, actually, uh, about expansions, I have to say, expansions do a good job at rebalancing things. And now to you, I have done. <laughs> so um, in that case, I haven't reached phase three yet. Um, I'm really happy with the game. I never felt that something is completely overpowered. Um, but um, yes, abilities are repetitive. It's not like every bird has a unique ability. Um, <clears throat> but um, yeah, it's a fun, simple game. I don't think the goal here is to entertain these hardcore uh, gamers that like their four-hour brain cruncher games. Um, but um, for me it's a um, relaxing game and a game that's great to introduce um, non-board gamers into more complex games and um, also it's just pretty the uh, the different birds are just beautiful and um, i mean i studied biology so there's that but um <clears throat> yeah the Big downside, I studied biology and I'm from Europe, is um, they, the birds are all birds that uh, are native to North, Amer North America. Um, so there are not a lot of familiar birds, but as you mentioned, there are expansions. And the first expansion is the Europe expansion, which 
uh, adds to the, uh, how many births are there? 170 births in the core game, I think about 80 or so European birds, uh, which is just great to see these familiar birds in a game. And, um, but doesn't really change anything from the mechanic side. Um, there's not really a lot of new stuff going on with the Europe expansion. It's, it's flair. Yeah? You have more variety with the birds and um, you have European birds, which is nice. And then there is another expansion, which I don't have yet. But I do. Uh, <laughs> I, you've, you forgot to mention that the European expansion, uh, apart from not just being American ethnocentric, has purple eggs. Get right. more eggs, right. and, and that's because <laughs> I, the the Oceana expansion has yellow eggs because obviously you've run out of eggs, which you never do. By um, the way, I, I should point out here for listeners who don't know the game, this was something that really confused us the first time we played because there are eggs in different colors inside the game. Uh, you have blue and but... white and, <laughs> and um, green, and the first thought is yeah, one color for each player. But no, oh, the oh, colors oh. don't mean anything. <laughs> you can just put them all in one bag and mix them. It doesn't yeah, matter. they're just eye candy. <laughs> eggs is eggs is eggs. Yeah. Um, so again, yeah, the yellow eggs in Oceana are just more eggs than you'll ever possibly need. But Oceana does a load of stuff to actually mix things up. Uh, for a starter, you get um, set collection stuff for nest types and wingspan size in amongst the cards, which is really interesting and cool. You can draw a tile for a round, you know, the goal tiles. This one has no goal at all. You just spend a round developing, not worrying about what the goal for the turn is, which really does like help That's give good. you a turn to relax. And my favorite goal tile, which way are your birds facing? What? So first, your bird's facing left or your bird's facing right, the person who has the most of those. Um, <laughs> the other good thing about this is there's actually a reduction in the number of egg-related goals. Because I don't know if you noticed, but in Wingspan and in Europe, eggs are really good. Because eggs are on the goals, eggs are worth points, eggs help you do stuff, eggs, eggs, eggs. Uh, Oceana looks to kind of make that a bit less of a strength by removing the egg-related goals and giving you other stuff to do and just let eggs be good as eggs. It also has a whole new set of food dice because it introduces nectar. And nectar, because it's Oceana, like there's a lot of nectar-eating birds there, uh, it's a wild food type. Um, but you can't save it from round to round. And oh. when you use it, it goes on your player board and gets stored towards points goals at the end of the game. Um, so that mixes everything up there. Also, your player boards, you get new ones. They give you ways to reset the bird feeder and the bird tray, because I don't know if you've played those points where you just, there's like all the food is different, but none of it's what you need. And so you can't manage to get a refresh on the bird feeder. Um, all, the, all the birds are terrible, so everyone's just drawing from the top of the deck all the time. They give you ways to do that. These are all great. Um, there are also some birds with end of game abilities. So you pick them and they don't do anything until right at the end of the game. And then they do something really nice and sweet which is pretty cool. That but most of all, good. the single most important thing that it does is it includes Nymphus Hollandicus, which every bird game should have. 
which are cockatiels to everyone else. <laughs> I am absolutely completely not biased about this matter. The little screaming shits who live in my conservatory are, <laughs> are not influencing my opinion whatsoever. Um, do do be honest. Did you buy this expansion just because of the cockatiels? I did. I did. But also, I really like Australian birds, especially New Zealand birds as I, well. I'm wondering, do they have the Australian magpie that is known to be extremely aggressive to people? Yes, they do. Yeah, they have the Australian oh, magpie, the... yeah. Are there kiwis? Yes, of course. Yeah, there are There are kiwis, and there's the way cooler flightless bird, um, uh, which I will, again, probably pronounce incorrectly, but the kakapo. Oh. Which is the cute little <laughs> green parrot thing um, that's wonderful. Uh, they got um, black swans. They got the abbot's boobies. Um, does, do, do they have ostriches? Um, I not. I can't remember the photo I've got here right now because my expansions upstairs doesn't have the ostrich li uh, listed on these. So I'm not sure. I couldn't answer. I'd have to go upstairs and who's got time for that? But it does it does have the, the budgerigars. It does seem like a great expansion. Yeah. They, they've done a lot to look at what wasn't working in the core game and built an expansion to actually try and Im improve it and add to it um, uh, while building on some of the stuff from Europe as well. So it, it's of the two expansions. Mechanically, I think it's the best one and I think it's almost essential to the game. Um, but again, if you're from Europe... The birds you know, they're in the Europe expansion and it's still pretty good. You know, I just had the thought that bird names kind of sound made up. And then I realized, yes, of course they are made up. Every <laughs> <world> is made up. <laughs> just a question from my side. Is there the uh, Kia available? Like this bird from New Zealand? It's like a greenish parrot, which like is super intelligent and they can get annoyed like they can like sometimes do crazy things in uh, New Zealand I think they even disassemble cars like parts of the cars like the <laughs> I, I'm not sure there's 95 birds in total in the expansion okay. and I've only got like 30 of them here with me so uh, I, I, I would have to sit and, and pour through it all um, I wasn't planning this wasn't my segment from, from mind. Just yeah. I mean, there's a lot of birds, and if you're not an ornithologist, uh, you would not know most of them. No, I know a few, like the fun ones, like Count Baggy's Bird of Paradise, because like, how could you not know that name? That's just so great. Uh, and of course, the classics like the kiwi, and as you mentioned, the the Australian magpie. Yeah, that's one of the game end birds, by the way. It has a special um, ability at the end of the game but yeah that's uh, that's what that's what Oceana brings to it and I think um, it's for people who love Wingspan I think it's like a must buy I definitely will want to to give it a try that's for sure again one of those expensive podcast episodes for me <laughs> got two on my list now <laughs> oh dear yeah well, uh, that is uh, that's a lovely, lovely wingspan. Um, but we're going to move on now. I don't think we're going to get too far away from birds with this one, if I remember correctly. Um, that there are some birds involved, maybe not your conventional kind, but uh, David can take us on a little wanderings through uh, a, a nice post-apocalyptic 
uh, story um, role-playing game with uh, is it I always get this wrong is it just called mutant or is it called mutant year zero oh that depends on the edition like the first actual edition <laughs> the first actual edition, uh, edition was actually released in 1984 it was just simply called mutant there were have been like different releases since then but they all have together like this post-apocalyptic setting which is a bit grubby and a bit like crazy but with a lot of dark humor. Um, the newest edition, Mutant Year Zero, was released by Free Pu League Publishing in 2014. And I think the English version is mostly published by Modifius. I hope I spelled that correctly. <laughs> and there have been a lot of different like expansions, like Mutant Gen like Alpha, Mutant Mechatron, and Mutant Elysium. They are all set in the same time and the same setting, like two, three decades after an apocalyptic. Uh, apocalyptic event um like it's not 100 clear what happened but it doesn't really matter for the storytelling it's like um on the gm to like explain the situation maybe give hints what happened um the artwork in general is rather gritty but but i think i think i like it it's cool and some of the artwork is downright great. Like uh, GenLab Alpha has like these animal mutants, which look like really fun. And there are like a few differences. In Mutant Year Zero, you play the name giving mutants, which live in the zone. While in GenLab Alpha, you play mutated animals that are kept in some kind of zoo. And Mutant Mechatron, you play robots in a massive factory that's falling apart. And meanwhile, in Elysium, you play humans that are living in a hidden, hidden enclave that survived the apocalypse. So, but in theory, you can play all books together and you can make up your own story by just taking all those books. Um, however, each core book comes with its own set of, with its own campaign and issues that the players are going to face. What I really find interesting is that they have, they are like the base set of rules is always the same, but like every book has like their own uh, focus. Like, let's say Mutants is all about mutations, and GenLab Alpha is more about like the behavior of animals between each other. Um, just an example, just an example. In Mutant Year Zero, you have like um, four attributes, which are strength, agility, wits, and empathy. While in GenLab Alpha, you switch empathy with instinct. And in Mechatron, you switch all attributes, which have like the, the same base and the same idea behind them, but the, the name is different. Like you have server, stability, processor, network. And then each book gives like your players a special ability. Like in Mutant Year Zero, you get mutations, obviously. <laughs> and those mutations are limited by resource like mutant points in Mutant Year Zero. And those give you like the chance to succeed automatically in tasks. Like if you have acid spit, you don't need to roll if you like want to open a lock. You just spit on them and, and they just, yeah, you know, the lock doors just melts. And which is rather interesting because like it's not like one dimensional because those uh, actual mutations are like multi use, which is really cool. Hmm. Um, that like reminds me of dread where um there's a like simple role-playing game 
but characters are allowed to have certain strengths that they always like automatically can succeed at. So that's that's a cool mechanic to not have to roll for everything, just be like, I can always do this. And it, it always gives a little bit more characterization to the characters too, which is uh, very fun. Yeah, here here mutant user it comes like uh, comes at a cost, at, like potentially, but it's really like cool from a like. Uh emergent storytelling aspect if you can just go some go with it you know you don't need to roll some die or something just you can just say i i do exactly what i want and just describe it that way which empowers the players which is always a good thing i i feel like yeah yeah but like in general like all those books have like some special ability for the players and in general like the rule system is simple but it's uh but it's good it's well for well thought like uh, let's say that there are in each book there are classes like in in mutant user you have like zone classes called like the stalker or gearhead while in gen lab alpha you have the scavenger warrior and in mechatron you have the cleaning cleaning robot <laughs> 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 which has like a really powerful ability which is that i'll come back later and in like uh, in Elysium, you have like the scholars, which are like the the uh, knowledge keepers of the human. And but basically, it always works the same. You have a pool of d6. It's like your attribute pool plus skill pool plus your gear. Every six is a success, and um, yeah, they can depending on what you use. They, those uh, yeah, the ones and six can have like special um effects that can trigger however if you don't make a roll like you have to roll like two successes like two sixes and you don't it doesn't work you roll one you can push your dice your your, your throw that means you re-roll everything except for the six and ones but on the second roll the ones can have like some negative effect like if you have gear you added like a few like a few d6 to your pool and you roll one on those d6 that means the gear can break because you overused it you used it the wrong way like you used the hammer and you slapped something so hard it broke the hammer but you fulfilled the task that's the important thing um yeah then there are a lot of different mutations that you don't have the control over <laughs> like um I'm just taking Mutant Yuzura as an example because like that's the main book. And those um those mutation costs you lets you do some like crazy things. But if you use them, you don't need to roll. But for each mutation point you will roll a die with D6. If it comes up with a one, it can have some side effect. Like it can either like on the six, it can supercharge your mutation, which means like you can use it again for free in the same second or like a one which means you mutate even further so you can have like different mutations at the same time which will reduce the attributes but give you another powerful like special ability um in general like combat is pretty deadly but simple with a critical injury table it's like more like storytelling i feel like and like a mutant user, you you also have those settlement simulation, which means like your mutation, your mutants have their own settlement, and their stuff will happen there. So that that means like you will have like random events every session, that could be like uh, 
a group from outsiders like came to the settlement and they told you about some riches or like resources like clean water or food that's somewhere in the zone or it could mean like some internal conflict like you have like some gang and those some gangs and those gangs fought each other and uh, destroyed part of the settlement and similar things I was wondering if the game used the, the modifius system, the one with two D twenty, but no, it uses this. Yeah, system. it's their it's their the own their own engine, pretty much. Um, like the settlement, you can develop it. Like you can find certain things in the zone. You can like find a book, and then you can decide if you want to keep your the book, or the players can decide if they want to keep their book for their own, to use it like as a guide in the zone. Or they can uh, give it to the settlement to help develop some kind of society, you know. It's a fun little, like, resource management thingy. But I think it's, like, cool to make the... Like, the players can have their own impact and make their own settlement. Um, yeah. Then you have also a big exploration um, aspect where you have, like, this zone. This like, a huge map. And you have, like, hex fields everywhere. That you can go and discover like certain hex fields will be filled up by the uh, game master but otherwise they are pretty much filled randomly which makes it pretty easy to uh, game masters to to fill up the map but at the same time um yeah it gives the players a lot of like um new things to explore and then you can find stuff in the in, in the, those zones in those hex fields like you could find special um artifacts and those artifacts could be something like a he-man figure like an action figure <laughs> um. if i if i remember correctly this game got um, a little bit more publicity uh, two years ago when there was a video game that came out of it that was um uh, very inspired by xcom and used the mutant year zero's uh, combat system and um general law to 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 exist i think it was called road to eden or something like that apparently it was pretty good um that uh, yeah yeah that it still gets attention on towards the game and i think that they ran a successful kickstarter last year uh on the the riding that uh, that popularity yeah yeah, yeah it's st it still gets good reviews on steam it's uh, yeah. it's a good game yeah and uh yeah and maybe we'll we'll see more of that game that's pretty pretty cool yeah, there are like some. I'm just finishing up like my my small part, like this exp expl exploration thing, like this exploration part, which uh, that you can like encounter things like rot, which is like something yeah negative effect, which is like in the water in the air, which can have like a negative impact on your players. Um, but like things like the cleaning robots, they actually can clean that up for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's why they are a good ability. Yeah, so that's like uh, the, you're pretty much playing Wally -E at that point. <laughs> um, yeah, altogether, it's it's an amazing system. It's like the rules are pretty simple, but like good, like complex enough, and like the artwork and like the ideas how to manage the game, it's like rather progressive and well thought, I think. So um, I can highly recommend the game. It's been on my, my list of games to try for a while, and I'm, I'm glad that you're, you're talking about it, because, uh, yeah, it does seem like a very fun game to, to play with. 
Yeah, the um, not exactly the same, but the video game has been like on my list of uh, things I've been waiting for it to drop on sale for for quite a while. That's probably the leverage that get me uh, to look at it more. Uh, although I must say, like the fact that you can play as animals, um, it is it, it, you know is quite sort of enticing. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, the thing. Um... What's really interesting personally for me, it's like it gives the GM a lot of freedoms while empowering the players at the same time. Like that's my favorite thing about the um, about the Year Zero engine in general. And I can see why they are using this system for other games like Tales from the Loop. Yeah. Uh, also uh, published by Mafidius. Yeah, it's also by Free League Publishing or Modifius. It's like I think the uh, Free League publishing is for like the Swedish, for the Swedish version, and then Modifius and um, Free League they both publish for the English market. I think, yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, they both do really good uh, physical editions of the the book that they publish. Uh, every single one that I've had was well, felt really really great and competent. Yep, I'm like I own pretty much all of the mutant books, except for the one book which is avoiding my my grasp. It's like uh, called Die Eaters Die Meat Eaters Die. It's about like uh, set in the GenLab Alpha version of Mutant Year Zero. It's about like militaristic rabbits <laughs> that have <laughs> that they, they yeah they dislike everybody that uh, eats meat. <laughs> And it's hard to get, but uh, I will. I think I will get it one day. <laughs> oh, so they're stereotypical vegans. Yeah, a <laughs> bit. So now we have another topic. I think unless you wanted to tell us about uh, something about the mind. <laughs> about about uh, ever having a dream that felt like a story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so. I want to talk to you about uh, mind management, which is uh, the, the actually the, the psychic espionage game. Uh, I, in truth, I could do an entire episode of this game of this game uh, alone because there's a lot to uncover. But I'll try to keep it short. So uh, I have notes. I hope to cover everything. So uh, what is it, mind management? First of all, it's a 2015 comic by Matt Kint. It's, uh, well, it's a story about the uh, US government uh, having had in the past uh, a, a, a secret division of uh, psychic operators who, who made things like peace uh, in foreign countries, uh, they administered uh, uh, black ops, uh, gray ops, uh, uh, everywhere and they were a branch of the government during the uh, a kind of cold war the the, the russians had uh, similar power then uh, and they were basically having a cold war of psychic agents uh, until at some time uh, uh, one of these agents uh, went uh, at a breakdown uh, it happened a disaster in zanzibar and uh, after then the the mind management was disbanded and uh, every agent uh, was uh, basically laid off 
the comic book uh, takes over a bit uh, later from here. So uh, actually, uh, th there's uh, I I didn't say names because otherwise this would be a big spoiler. So. Um, uh, the comic is a great comic which has a lot of layers to uh, to read because it's uh, a story it's it has a story behind the story uh, with uh, uh, small visual cues and uh, kind of riddle scenes and something like that and uh, it also has the uh, a little of uh, uh, side uh, side text which can be read and it's actually related to what happens in in the panels you are reading at the moment but uh, but uh, actually it will turn out to be more by the end of the by, by, by the end of reading the comics and uh, well that is a very good comic. Uh, if you are American, you can uh, see, you can uh, collect it uh, right now in uh, very, very uh, easy to read uh, collections, and they are available online, and it's a recommended read. But the game is a kind of a thematic and uh, uh, actually gaming masterpiece. Uh, now. <laughs> not to get ahead of myself uh, mind management as a game is uh, uh, basically a hidden movement game it's played uh, you have on one side a recruiter from mind management which uh, who has the the objective of recruiting uh, nine or twelve people in the city of zanzibar before 2 pm in a day on the other side, you have rogue agents of, of mind management. Uh, so people who break free of the organization, who are uh, bent on uh, destroying it and uh, capture the recruiter. Uh, their objective is to actually uh, find the recruiter and capture him or her. So uh, the game plays like a hidden movement game. You have a recruiter uh, turn, then you have a rogue agent turn. Uh, you move on uh, eight by eight, so like a chessboard grid. And uh, basically you can move only orthogonally. And the recruiter has to move one step at a time on this uh, board only orthogonally and record uh, his movement during this movement he cannot step twice on the same location so he has to move uh, like a traveling salesman problem he has to move uh, without entering two times the same square and uh, and uh, each of these uh, of these squares has two features out of a set of multiple. Uh, the recruiter knows in advance three features. For example, there's a billboard, there's a newspaper, there are dogs, there is stuff which is uh, present in the comics, but you uh, will see it in the board. And uh, if you enter a square with a feature the recruiter has 
and uh, that feature is hidden to players the recruiter uh, can uh, recruit one people uh, one person so uh, one agent and when they recruited uh, the total pool of agents available which is nine in a learning game and 12 in a full game the recruiter has one if the agent in turn can find the recruiter uh, before uh, the recruiter recruits all uh, the possible agents uh, then the rogue agent win now uh, basically this game is letter from Whitechapel simplified you don't uh, have uh, all the possible location from letter from Whitechapel you have kind of the same movement and basically what happens is that the recruiter moves and uh, the rogue agents uh, we who can perform uh, a movement of just two squares uh, compared to four squares for the recruiter and uh, they can perform one each of uh, uh, of the following action which is ask they can ask the recruiter if the recruiter has ever been in the course of the game on uh, one square with a feature they are in uh, the recruiter, if has been there, uh, should uh, just place a step token, which is a small footprint, indicating that uh, the recruiter has passed there at some point. Uh, the other action is reveal. Uh, they can ask if uh, the, the recruiter has... Uh, uh, at which time the recruiter has passed at uh, uh, location the time indicates the turn in which the recruiter has passed so that you have complete information about uh, the square and when the the recruiter passed through it and the last action possible is capture if they if the agents believe that uh, they are in a square with the recruiter they can try to capture it uh, capture him so uh, the problem is that of course, uh, they, you have one action per agent and you have up to three agents. So uh, you have an action economy pretty tight. And uh, you, of course, cannot waste a capture that way because there's a lot to do and a lot to learn. Uh, to further complicate things, there are things like, uh, uh, like immortals which are agents controlled by the recruiter. They, you have two immortals, which uh, basically uh, can be moved like uh, pawns on the map. And when they are on the map, an agent cannot try uh, a capture there. Also, if the immortals are in, uh, in a square where both... Uh, uh, where they both share uh, a feature, a terrain feature they need to use to recruit, they can recruit like uh, as if they were the recruiter. So it's basically an added power for the recruiter. Uh, they are also a liability because when agents uh, get in the same square as uh, an immortal, they can perform a shakedown action which is basically interrogate the immortal about the feature. If they guess correctly the feature they are asking the immortal, 
the recruiter must show that feature and cannot use that feature again in the game. So that's basically a double-edged sword. Of course, the recruiter can use immortals to lure uh, the players, uh, can use immortals to uh, move away the players or to just protect uh, himself or to just try to recruit more. Uh, in addition to that, there is one last move available to the recruiter, which is the Mind Slip, which is basically a special movement, uh, which is a limited power the recruiter can use. Uh, initially, the recruiter has one Mind Slip token. They can turn in the token to perform a special movement, which is depending on the recruiter. For example, uh, you have uh, two possible recruiters, which are... Uh, the admin who can perform a mind slip three squares in an orthogonal line and you have the pipe girl who, uh, who can perform the same mind slip three squares in a, in a dia diagonal line uh, everything of this combined is uh, basically what uh, mind management is about but what it is basically it is a uh, perfect 2 to 4 player uh, in the movement game which plays in less than an hour and it actually plays in less than an hour <laughs> of course <laughs> if there are no questions <laughs> uh, well my only question is going to be uh, this seems to be a very complex game but a very interesting one I always like uh, hidden movement games um, how... In truth, it's, re it's really simple mm. because uh, basically uh, you have a big board where everyone moves into and uh, a small board when you record movement, when the recruiter record movement and that is hidden and it's tracked with a dry erase marker. Uh, you just take turns. It's very, very fast. Okay. I was, I was if just... that was the question. Oh, the, the question was more... Um... <laughs> How long does it take to to like introduce the game and get someone to be properly uh, able to play to play it? Like, who, would you say that it takes one two game? Uh, yeah, I think uh, there is a simplified version of the game, which is the learning game, which is basically the recruiter who moves and the rogue agents who try to capture the recruiter right. without the immortals. And that is quite fast. I think that you can get the grasp of the game in exactly the, the, the learning game. But uh, uh, in truth, it is not like the game is difficult. Is that uh, I enjoy this game so much that I'm trying to, to get ahead of, my, of myself and try to explain more than what is required. Because basically, really... It's uh, the recruiter moves four squares and recruits everyone who can, who can be recruited in those four squares. It ends up in a hidden square. The agents uh, during their turn are uh, just trying to guess where the recruiter is. And if they cannot do that, they just move and ask where uh, the recruiter has been. Uh, at the beginning of the game, you can be pretty sure that the recruiter moved there, but uh, at some point during the game, you will lose track of everything. Uh, to complicate this, or to make this more interesting, every odd turn, 
you have to say uh, as the recruiter you have to say how many people you have recruited so far so that you cannot be sure if uh, it happened in one of the last two turns but you can sure that uh, a recruiting has happened so you can have a vague track of how the recruiter moved all right i see that's good that they have a specific learning game version um, to, to help people introduce into game into the game yeah uh, th there are uh, a couple other simplifications because there is an app which uh, has currently been developed just for iphone it has actually been developed for both iphone and android but at the moment of recording it's only available on iphone which uh, gives solo and co-op mod so without with a bot recruiter uh, for the game for actually currently just for the learning game but uh, there are plans to update uh, to have the full uh, the full game spectrum and uh, more than that there is uh, like the game has like 10 modules which are 10 mini expansions which can be added and uh, basically whenever a game ends you uh, have the option of opening the, the losing side can open a shift package a shift package is just a small comic book uh, written by Matt Kint uh, and uh, usually except of the of the actual uh, mind management comic book and uh, a special power to give an advantage to the previous losing side so that uh, for example you can gain new powers for rogue agents new powers from the recruiter you can get new rogue agents new modifiers for the mortals and so on and uh, these are uh, 10 packages which can be uh, opened uh, one after the other and there are rules to integrate them permanently uh, for instance uh, when you have uh, a selection of sheet packages you can always decide to incorporate some uh, depending on the number or the number of sheet packages that uh, uh, rogue agents want to employ the recruiter can choose uh, the same number minus one of shift packages for him so that you can have for example three packages for rogue agents and two packages for the recruiter and have a different game every time finally because uh, this uh, this is only half what this game is there's uh, this game is playing mind tricks on you all the time uh, now I, I would really encourage everyone to have a good hard look at the game and the game pictures on board game geek on the kickstarter page everywhere because the game as a lot of subtle uh, mind tricks with, which will make you paranoid about everything uh, for instance the box is full of two colors red and blue messages which say one thing in red and the contrary in blue and depending on if you are uh, uh, looking with your plain sight or with a red filter you will get a different message 
the the manual is full of this stuff and uh, also there are sometimes typos which are actually intended to convey a different message also uh, in in all game components including the box including the manual including uh, the inserts and stuff like that there are secret keywords you can enter at a website to unlock new content which is print and play or new rules for the game yeah it's incredibly cool i i, I found nine of those so far and uh, there is stuff which uh, i uh, this game is perfect it, it makes you paranoid uh, for instance in the punch board of the cardboard tokens there is a message uh, i'll try to decipher it uh, without uh, the red filter it says in red all, ide all ideas are recycled uh, do the right thing in, in meaning that i should throw this uh, cardboard out in the in blue it says do not throw this away use this to unlock a code on the website <laughs> so <laughs> I, I i i have not found a, a way to employ this but i'm keeping this because <laughs> i'm told to throw it away so it's it's perfect it's really the perfect theming it makes you completely paranoid about everything you don't want to try to, to throw anything away you you are keeping everything and you are reading the comics and you are finding stuff everywhere it's really really a nice theme i think i enjoy a lot if this game was to be just a seven like uh, i mean uh, okay if i'm in the mood i will play this game uh, the theme has made it an eight because uh, I i'll i'll do a comp i'll pay a compliment to this game i'm playing a lot of descent legends of the dark these days a friend of mine uh, showed up while i was playing descent instead of adding my friend to a descent game which could be done because it's an easy game to enter I I suggested to play mind management. So I actually mm, I understood then that I really like this game. This is a very good game by itself. It's fun. Wonderful. That does look <laughs> like a really fun game. Yeah. So th this was basically a wall of words to say uh, in the movement is a is a difficult genre to enter because the games you have except scotland yard which is uh, probably still the king which is a very simple game it's it plays faster than this one and it's simple to play you have letters from whitechapel which is basically the best game for multiple players there is and you have fury of dracula which is an old classic i am personally a bit bored by fury of dracula especially because it drags in the end but uh, it's uh, perfectly understandable uh, this is a difficult genre i have to say if you have two players and want to play a quick hidden movement game without uh, uh, too many problems but but which feels satisfactory and deep mind management is absolutely a great game to play well i'll be sure to have a look at it because it looks great um and with that final coded message, uh, it's all that we have time for this episode. So 
thanks you for listening to The Last Andy. You can catch us over at uh, patreon.com slash The Last Andy with two E or follow up at The Last Andy in tw on Twitter or subscribe to your preferred uh, podcast app. So it's a goodbye from me and from Alessio. Bye. From Cara. Bye. From David. Tschüss. And from Sam. Uh, goodbye from myself. And remember that the second E in Stan D is for egg. Expionage. <laughs> Great! <laughs>